Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It's almost impossible to quantify the problems with the way we approach healthcare in this country. For something which should be a human right, high quality healthcare is often provided in unlimited amounts to the rich at the expense of the poor, especially people of color. In his new book, The Emergency, A Year of Healing and Heartbreak in a Chicago ER, my guest, Dr. Thomas Fisher, examines the injustices of our system through the eyes of a physician trying to do his best for his patients in a system that seems designed to prevent him from doing so. Over 200 black people die every single day who would not die if the health of black and white were equal. The virus does not discriminate. It's a line many have used to describe the fact that anyone can come down with COVID-19. But when it comes to human behavior, discrimination has reigned supreme in this pandemic. We go into medicine and healthcare to try to heal people, to take care of people, to save lives. So when you're confronted with this much sickness and death in such a short period of time, it is not only physically taxing, but it is incredibly emotionally taxing as well. My name is Thomas Fisher, and I'm fighting to make healthcare more just and humane. Sorry, not sorry. Dr. Fisher, welcome to Sorry Not Sorry. I want to get into your book, your incredible book, but first, can you tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on. It's amazing to be here. I'm an emergency medicine physician and I live on the south side of Chicago. I work on the south side of Chicago, the same community where I grew up, which is a very interesting place that is full of complexity and richness of about a million people. It is, in my opinion, the capital of Black America, a community that birthed Michelle Obama and Mahalia Jackson and Carol Mosey Braun and all kinds of other luminaries across broad genres. And I'm 
privilege to take care of folks who were my educators, who were friends of my parents and friends themselves in the emergency department where I practice. You essentially treat people that you grew up with in some of the worst moments of their lives. How does that work? How can you separate that connect? Or maybe you don't. Maybe that's what makes you a great physician. It's changed over the arc of my career. I think early on, I was struggling just to completely understand what was happening in front of me and apply the best of my medical training in real time so that people got better. And then as things start to slow down, I was regularly overwhelmed by the context and situations that people find themselves in. What is a regular day for me is often a before and after day for other people. The day they had their car accident or the day that grandma had their stroke or the day that their pregnancy went from normal to abnormal. Those moments, I didn't always have a language for or an understanding on how to best engage them. And so I would put up walls and shut them down. And then my career got to a point where I realized that these were the most human moments in people's lives. And my ability to connect with people when they have shed all of the trappings of their culture, the hats that they wear at work, facades they put up at home and are most bare are some of the most intimate and important parts. And it is from there that I wrote this book. And it is that which fuels the care that I've delivered to patients and what I try to teach you know, residents and interns to be there as often as they possibly can, which is not always easy to do, but the more you can do it, the better. You open your book describing your experience with the first COVID case that you encountered in your ER. Can you talk about that day for my listeners? Sure. I think that for me, I was watching COVID march around the world on Twitter. I mean, I'm a lurker more than a tweeter. But I was watching it emerge in China and saw how it was shutting down cities and how many physicians had fallen ill and even died. I saw it get to Europe. And I think everybody remembers how Italy was compelled to shut down and people were, they had images of hospitals that were full and people peeking out of their apartments, looking out of windows. When it finally came to us, it had already hit. Seattle, and to some extent, my colleagues in New York were being pushed to their limits. And what I remember was we had done all this drilling for how to use PPE and where the negative pressure rooms were going to be. And until you do it the first time, it's like, you know, your practice is one thing, but game time is something totally different. And in the book, I describe how we made all these errors and how we had to relearn so many things that had generally come naturally. Look, we know how to walk in a room and say hello to a patient. But now we had to first put on a mask, put on eye protection, put on a gown, put on gloves, use the rooms correctly. And all of a sudden, we have all these barriers between ourselves and the patient. We're breathing through a filter in a way that that's not normal. It's not something we'd been used to. And it's now very normal. But we made mistakes and got lucky a lot along the way. I see EMS stretchers lining down the block. It's jam-packed waiting room filled with 30 to 40 patients next to each other, coughing, giving COVID-19 to one another. There is physically no more room in the emergency room. You bring any more patients in, then you cannot walk. We had a few patients die in the emergency room because the hospital's full. And that was also a time when, you know, couldn't find testing. And the PPE was running short. It really is amazing when I think back at the way it unfolded. 
Had we had the infrastructure and healthcare that we should, being one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nation on the planet, how many cracks there were in our system and vulnerabilities. Because I feel like if we were, if we had all of that in place, meaning just a, a secure healthcare system, we could have looked at China and we could have looked at Italy and said, this is going to come here and, and we are completely ready. We know what we have to do to keep people comfortable, to keep people alive. And it just, it almost felt like we were watching everything in slow motion unfold, but we couldn't stop time. And it was incredibly frustrating. I, I had Alpha. I got it in Portland, Oregon. I still suffer from long haulers symptoms. And that's another thing that we still haven't really even acknowledged or tried to figure out how we're going to fix. That's part of this that I think is going to come out years from now where we are going to have a lot of people who have disabilities because of very weak healthcare system. And I think the experience of COVID revealed a lot of injustices and really how they intersect. And in your book, you write COVID smashed through the South Side's multi-generational homes. This is a neighborhood packed with people who don't have the sort of white-collar jobs that you let work from home with nothing but a frayed safety net to hold them if they fell. They had to risk their bodies just to keep from starving. What does that say about us as a nation? So much of who was defined to be essential didn't reflect their true value in society. While it is essential that folks drive the trucks and stock the shelves and work in the warehouses and deliver the food, they weren't always paid or insured in a way that reflected their central importance to our society. And so when they fell ill and they went home to their elders that were also in their home and the young people, those folks also fell ill and came to us for care. And it was really bewildering. Look, one of the things about working in the emergency department, practicing emergency medicine, is we're used to being Swiss army knives. We may not know exactly what's going on, but we know what to do. And here we are caught flat-footed. We didn't have testing for months. Like in May, we didn't. We didn't have any testing. We didn't have therapeutics that were unique. We were learning as we went. We were trying to get the best lessons from what folks in Europe were doing and the best lessons from what folks in Asia were doing and trying to communicate with folks across the country to, you know, what's working and what's not and trying to do the best we could to save people. But it was a really helpless feeling. And then on top of that, we were also at risk of falling ill. Our pharmacists and nurses, techs and security and housekeeping, doctors, everybody's been working as a team. And until this period, while we always had high stakes decisions and and some risk of violence and things of that nature that might spill over from the community. In general, we know we're going to go home, but all of a sudden COVID didn't make that clear. And by putting us at risk, that jeopardized one of the few healthcare outlets that folks in our community had to access the healthcare system when they fell ill. It was a bewildering time and a big contrast between the South side and the North side, which is really just a reflection of society. There's nothing unique about Chicago, good or bad. This is just America. And so we saw folks with white collar jobs, our lawyers and folks who work in technology who can sit at home with headsets on in front of a screen like we're doing right now, safe while their food was being delivered by folks who were not similarly protected and who fell ill in droves. And who didn't have the luxury of sitting this out. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to talk about, because I think it's important, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about how race affected people in the pandemic. In large part, I wrote this book to better describe how we have a society that sorts by racial caste and socioeconomic status. And those at the bottom are not being protected by the good services protections of our society and fall ill in droves. Officials have said over and over again, the virus doesn't discriminate. But the disparities that have long been part of our medical system in America are now leading to what some call a crisis within a crisis. Black and brown communities across the country being hit harder, in greater numbers, and with fewer resources to save them. And I did this book in such a way where I take the reader into the emergency department with me and reveal to them the challenges that folks experience and do so in such a manner where they could see themselves in these experiences of people who don't live in the same community they do, but recognize their shared humanity. In a city like ours, where everybody falls sick and everybody besides the wealthiest among us will not be able to pay for their care, it turns out so much of our healthcare system is oriented towards those who have private insurance. They tend to have faster services and more amenities and higher quality care. And so in a city like Chicago, Black folks are less likely to have this desirable insurance than white folks and are 50% more likely than white folks to be uninsured. When you look at a map of Chicago segregation, and Chicago's one of the most segregated cities in the country, but not the only one, a map of our segregation demonstrates how Chicago crowds Black folks into communities with high rates of Medicaid or without insurance at all. And so in a neighborhood very near mine, Inglewood, a little over 12% are uninsured. In comparison on the north side in Lincoln Park, only 2.5% are uninsured. Providers respond to that concentration of patients who can't pay them richly with fewer services and more difficulty in accessing those sort of services that are available. So if you overlay a map of where private insurance is, and then you overlay a map of race, and then you overlay a map of where healthcare outlets are, you can see how they're all preferentially distributed amongst the whiter and wealthier neighborhoods on the north side. And you won't be surprised that men who live in that poorer, blacker Inglewood have a life expectancy that's 30 years shorter than those who live in a wealthy white neighborhood like Streeterville. 30 years shorter. 30 years, 59 years in Inglewood compared to about 90 in Streeterville. These things have been constructed over centuries. It doesn't require that anybody is particularly angry or hateful. It just requires that you don't know and don't try to rectify it. And these systems just continue over time. And we see them in the care of the, in the bodies of the patients that I care for. And you see them in the systems that they seek care in. And I just think it's important that we're honest about that. And we stare at it closely and don't accept it. 
you mentioned you don't know and you don't do something about it. Or to me, what's even worse is you do know and people still choose to do nothing about it. That part is particularly frustrating, but I don't know what you do about that component, right? The people who, and I I am optimistic that is a smaller minority, are happy with inequity. I, I think the vast majority simply don't know. And I think that if there's some things you can't unsee, and once you see them, you have to do something about it. I'm hoping that this book forces people to see something that they cannot unsee and sit with these uncomfortable truths until they're moved to action, rather than sit in a very peaceful, blissful, but ignorant state. Because if you see people as equally human as you do, and you recognize that we've created a society that robs them of their health, that forces you to do something. You cannot just sit with those truths. But policymakers and legislators know what's going on. And so I love your hopeful optimism, but to play devil's advocate, I think there is no excuse for this nation to continue to allow the inequity and the unjust caste system that has been created here for another moment, for another disaster, for another, it's just, it's never ending. And People know, and people are not legislating or passing policy to make things easier. And so we shouldn't have to depend on activists doing all the work on the ground. There are people who are paid a lot of money, too, by the way, to care for constituents. And, and it's not just Chicago. I mean, we're dealing with the unhoused in Los Angeles and in the state of California in numbers that I've never seen in my 30 years of living here. And there's got to be a way to fix it. There's got to be a way. And every single day that we choose to turn the other way is a little piece of me dies (laughs) because I just don't understand. And the other thing is like COVID also created an epidemic of loneliness. And I feel like healthcare workers may bore the brunt of this even more than the rest of us as you were exposed every day. And had to worry about bringing it home to your families or giving it to coworkers. What impact did that loneliness have on all of us, but especially healthcare workers? It was incredibly hard because I assumed that I was an asymptomatic carrier at all times because I was exposed so often. And so many of my colleagues over the course of 2020 and 2021 fell ill that I made some very important sacrifices. After a year on the front lines, for many, the emotional wounds of COVID-19 run deep. We are not okay. We are tired and we are scared. Please, please, please wear your mask, um, social distance. From pleading with the public to do the right thing to sitting at countless bedsides as patients died without family or friends. To hold these hands and bear this weight and do what we do, And then to come home and to have to hear people say it's not real, it's indescribable. I spent very little time with loved ones, particularly my elderly parents, indoors. When the weather was warm, we would sit outside and have picnics and spend regular time together, but not indoors. And we would do masking until everybody was vaccinated and safe. I used to travel to see friends and loved ones regularly. kind of came to a halt. There were just a lot of sacrifices. And I'm not sure that many of us 
are back to normal. And in fact, I think that is part of what fuels the number of folks who are leaving medicine and nursing and the other care delivering professions because of how challenging the past couple of years have been. And we've seen society evolve away from the support that providers needed. At the beginning, there was a whole lot of energy around bending the curve so the healthcare system wouldn't be crushed. And we saw in New York just really remarkable support for first responders, people banging pots and pans every day at seven o'clock. I mean, it was, it was just a sign that everybody was in it together. Even if that didn't ameliorate PTSD of falling ill and seeing so much death, it was a sign that we could pull together around the same questions. And that's largely gone. And when Omicron hit, there was no conversation about let's make some collective sacrifices and deploy public health initiatives in order to ensure that, you know, the healthcare workers remain safe and that our healthcare system is able to deliver care for everybody. That was, you're on your own. That doesn't bode well for the future. We're not yet done with COVID, or I should say COVID is not yet done with us. And it's important that we continue to pull together, particularly for the sake of each other, but also for those who are delivering care in those settings. Did I see that the CDC is now coming up with a program for the booster shot that's like, it's up to you? That's the tagline? It's something like that? Like, you decide. Thinking to myself, like, that is the problem. That's exactly the problem. It's like when we're putting my parents' health in jeopardy because we're not having enough compassion and empathy to do things for the community. Also, like, just the idea of time, the fact that we could be four boosters into this and still sort of flailing and not understanding. And I think it goes to what you were saying before about how early in the pandemic it became apparent to you that hospital workers who had spent careers developing a certain routine had to basically just make new plans for almost every aspect of their work. And you write about in the book how even the small things like changing into scrubs before a shift couldn't proceed the way they used to. But how did these changes impact the way patients received care? So there's already distance between patients and doctors and nurses. Sometimes it's socioeconomic where doctors tend to be, are all well-educated. Some of them are quite wealthy. And patients may or may not be any of those things. There's also the difference between being sick and being healthy enough to deliver care. There's this language distance. Doctors use all this weird Latin and have a vocabulary around illness and organs that people don't always share. And we work really hard to bridge that. If you're doing the job, you're trying to make it as close and as intimate as possible so that you're getting the best information in order to deliver care and they're getting the best information from you in order to know what's going on and how to engage. We fail at that all the time, but we're aware of it and we're trying. But now all of a sudden, you've got PPE in between us. And People who want to be seen as normal are being forced behind masks and you're stepping further and further away from them in the room and they don't see your face because it's being covered. That sort of reshapes the human connection in a time when they need a human connection the most. And also at the beginning in particular, there was a stigma around this. Nobody wanted to have it, right? And some of that stigma was really rational because If you went home and said you had COVID, people might kick you out the house. Like, you can't stay here with us. You got it. Well, where are you going to go? 
maybe you had to keep going to work no matter what. And if you fell sick, now you don't have income in order to pay your bills. The coronavirus is showing us there's a new kind of essential worker on the front lines of this pandemic. While millions stay at home, grocery workers, warehouse workers, truck drivers, and many more are venturing out on the job every single day, feeding the insatiable demand for food and supplies. These are jobs that can't be done from home. And with an ongoing unemployment crisis crippling our country, many workers have no option other than to show up, despite the health risk. It was a long time before there were stimulus checks heading out to people who needed it in order to pay rent or buy food. That didn't happen right away. Between the PPE and this stigma, if we didn't have a test and we we're like, look, we think you have COVID. Folks are like, no, I don't. I, I know I don't have COVID because I know what COVID looks like. COVID is, oh, those people are dying. Those people are really sick. I just have a little cold. I mean, first, the lucky people, that's what it looks like. But if you go home and give it to your aunt who's on dialysis, well, she might not be so lucky. Or your granddad, who is 87, he might not be so old. So you need to be, we needed to figure out ways to bridge that information gap in a setting where we had very few tools. We were being pushed apart by distance and masks. And, and we didn't have really great answers except wear a mask and stay away from folks. And even that message was messed up in the beginning because people were saying, don't wear a mask. It doesn't do anything. And then you're thinking, if it doesn't do anything, like every time I go to the ER, people are in masks. I'm pretty sure they know that it's protecting them or protecting. It was very hurtful. It was hurtful. And it was the thing that dominated all other care. But people still had heart attacks. They still got shot, had cancer, were hit by cars, had kidney failure, and all the other emergencies that could bring people to the ER. I guess the question is, what was it like taking care of people with non-COVID illnesses and injuries at the height of the pandemic? At the height, what happened was people who could stay away stayed at home. And so we saw, very, you know, besides COVID, we saw many fewer patients until about summertime. When we saw that first wave in the spring, and then it calmed down a little bit, and folks began to reemerge with folks who had been having trouble breathing for weeks, just waited at home until it was unbearable before they came in. We saw more deaths at home for people who might have called 911. But then we saw society fray in ways that we haven't really seen in generations, where there were few outlets for people to divert their time and energy. School was out. A lot of people lost jobs. A ton of people lost jobs at that first, during that first wave. Things like libraries, gyms, churches, midnight basketball, all of these things that were anchors within community disappeared. That led to a huge spike in violence on the South Side. So you have people who don't have jobs, but still need to eat. And there are few distractions and there's hot weather. And even the elders who used to keep a lid on things by negotiating and communicating and helping anchor our communities or our violence interrupters who did that same work. Many of those elders got sick or died or were trying to stay away in order to remain healthy. 
we saw a spasm in violence in our communities across the nation and on the south side of Chicago in particular that was that we hadn't seen before. And it wasn't, and you could really explain it by what you saw in society. When you don't have a job to go to and you still have to figure out a way to eat, that creates an incredible amount of tension. There was no place to blow that off until we got further through the pandemic and things like stimulus checks helped. Vaccines ultimately helped people get back to work and allowed for folks who would anchor the communities to return. But instead, what we saw was, you know, it was turned largely into a criminal justice issue rather than we need the community supports that actually create safety. Well, I want to just shift gears and go back to something we were talking about before, which is policy. First of all, you were a White House fellow. So tell us about that experience and what happens at the top level of healthcare policy decision making. That was the best job I've ever had. And it was a heady time because I was in at HHS in 2010 and 2011, soon after the Affordable Care Act passed. And so you had some of the wonkiest walks and smartest people in the healthcare world in the same place at the same time. And I got great mentorship and found wonderful colleagues, many of whom I am fortunate to be with to this day. And at the time you had this, it was where policy and politics came into conflict sometime where people who our, our universities are and think tanks are chock full of individuals who have spent their careers identifying the best solutions to some of our most recalcitrant healthcare troubles. So where's the disconnect? The disconnect then often runs into how are you going to get that paid for and who is going to stake political and social capital to deliver it? Senator Joe Manchin's daughter, who used to be the CEO of Mylan Pharmaceuticals, uh, was actually a key player in a plot to monopolize the market for the severe allergy medication known as EpiPen. Now, this is something that most people suspected. But thanks to new reporting by Ryan Grimm over at The Intercept, we now have some documents in the form of email exchanges making it abundantly clear that Mylan Pharmaceuticals under her leadership very intentionally made sure that there was no competition in the market for the EpiPen. And we saw that with some regularity. And I think that I, on the one hand, recognize this is a very American challenge, one of our democracy in general, to the extent that we have democracy. And I also recognize that our challenges are somewhat deeper than policy. Like, look, Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. And we saw gradual desegregation. The Civil Rights Act tied desegregation to funds. And then we saw relatively rapid desegregation until the 80s. And now schools are as segregated as they were before. And we had the policies in place. But we as a society have not grappled with these fundamental challenges around equal protections of the law, our racial caste system and the elevation of profit of people to the extent that unless we actually tackle that policy won't ultimately be enough. And what I see regularly are, there are a ton of great solutions to making our healthcare better. We're seeing some of them in place, but we have to be really intentional about the equity component so that we are incorporating the fact that America is stratified by racial caste in the way we measure incentivize and deliver our care processes and have the endurance to persist 
over generations in these realizations in order to get this right. Because once we pass the law, we're like, hey, we did it. We're done. That's what we do. And then we wonder, well, why is the racial wealth gap so broad? Why do we see educational attainment the same? Why are our schools still segregated? We haven't tackled racial caste. We don't even acknowledge it half of the time. We're colorblind, or those were things of the past. And in fact, those animate the way our laws are implemented or unwound. And, and to me, while we can measure the impact of racial injustice in a myriad of ways, and we do it all the time, like wealth inequity is one of the ways most commonly banded about, so is education. But in fact, it is that which makes that 30-year life expectancy difference in Chicago. It's our lives that we're talking about. Chicago has the largest racial gap in life expectancy among the 500 largest cities in the U.S. That's according to data compiled by New York University's Department of Population Health. Black Chicagoans live an average of 30 years less than white residents. Other cities that follow Chicago with the largest life expectancy gaps include Washington, New York City, New Orleans, and Buffalo, New York. The way we live, learn, work, and play is what generates our health. And the way we live, learn, work, and play is shaped by racial caste, unless we decide it shouldn't be any longer, unless we decide that we are, in fact, equally human, and unless we decide that our democracy ought to serve everyone in the same way, in the way that the words of our Constitution and its amendments are demonstrated. And it's been intergenerational struggle often led by Black folks that have demanded that America live up to these ideals, the ideals it says it owns. That's all we got to do. We don't have to do anything new. Just do what we say we are. And if we were to get there, then the policies, many of which we have in place, others are on the shelves in in academia and think tanks, could actually deliver the sorts of health outcomes that matter. And, And I think part of what makes being a physician in the emergency department cool and in healthcare in general is that you're the canary in the mind shed. You can see the impact of our segregation and of our policies in the bodies of the people we care for, if you're willing to look and if you're honest about what you see. Trying to share some of that in the book, but that's what I've been working on for 20 years, 20 plus years. I'm old. Is it possible to have an equitable healthcare system when we have a for profit healthcare system? That is a very challenging question. And what I want to add to it is nonprofit healthcare and for profit healthcare are all shaped by a similar American capitalist notion of surplus. I think that those, that shaping is why you see so many healthcare outlets in places where the insured are in comparison to the uninsured. That's why you see advertisements for healthcare for many of our hospitals and medical centers being cast to those who have the most wealth and the best insurance. That's why you see VIP pathways in many institutions where those who can pay the most are offered exclusive and boutique services. Those things, I think, are very challenging and can be mitigated with a motivated moral leadership that is centering humanity above all else. But it's going to be very difficult. I think those changes can exist in certain locations. And we see them now. We see institutions that are tackling. There are institutions in Chicago that see the way they hire their workers as a part of generating the healthcare in the community that they exist in. 
that are working hard to mitigate VIP pathways so that everybody has similar access. But nonprofit healthcare systems and for-profit healthcare systems are all going at this in the same way. They're all trying to recruit those who pay the most. And that fundamental model is something we all have a stake in. And if we were able to tackle that, everybody's health would improve. But it requires some really honest conversation, the likes of which is very difficult to have at this point. If there is one lesson, one critically important takeaway from your experience as an ER doctor during a pandemic, what is it? The one thing that I think is most important is the recognition that we hold a shared and sacred humanity that we owe to one another the care of those very essential components of what allow for us to love and aspire and hope and work. It's the care of our bodies. That is the most important thing that we as a society can do for one another. And if in no other situation, we, if nowhere else, it is there that we need to allow our best intentions and best thinking to elevate that service above our share, above profit motive and above racial caste. And if we can do it there, then we can demonstrate how we can do it in other places. And finally, what gives you hope? Ah, What gives me hope? Look, you know, I grew up in a community of Black folks on the South Side that has been in an intergenerational struggle to make these things better well before I was born and will continue well after I'm gone. So I see this truth-telling and struggle as a part of a long arc. And there are young people who are hearing this and are doing the work in ways that I couldn't even imagine. And so that makes me feel very inspired so that even if I don't see the results in my lifetime, I feel as though this art continues. Well, Thomas Fisher, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. Thanks for having me on. An article in the Yale Alumni Magazine told the story of Clyde Murphy, a black man who was a member of the class of 1970. Clyde was a success story. After Yale and a law degree from Columbia, Clyde spent the next 30 years as one of America's top civil rights lawyers. He was also a great husband and father. But despite his success, personally, And professionally, Clyde's story had a sad ending. In 2010, at the age of 62, Clyde died from a blood clot in his lung. Clyde's experience was not unique. Many of his black classmates from Yale also died young. In fact, the magazine article indicated that 41 years after graduation from Yale, the black members of the class of 1970 had a death rate that was three times higher than that of the average class member. Healthcare is a human right. Full stop. High quality, life saving, and life improving healthcare should never be dependent on how rich someone is, the color of their skin, or where they live. And yet that's exactly the system we've designed. We've equated net worth with human worth. And it is very literally 
killing people. We need to do better. We need to listen to people like Dr. Fisher, who understands both medicine and policy, and let them lead us to an equitable healthcare system which treats us all equally. We're actually arguing in this country, one of the richest ever to grace the face of the nation, of the planet, whether drug companies should be able to charge unlimited amounts of money for insulin, for fuck's sake. How can this even be a discussion? How can people suffer and die at home because they can't afford an emergency room co-payment or the deductible on their insurance plans? How can we give nearly $2 trillion in tax cuts to the richest Americans while we still don't have health care for everyone? It's immoral. It's repugnant. And it has to change. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.